0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, it's not morning, is it? Now, good evening, everybody. Um, let me first uh, sort of apologize. Um, that is, I'm going to be. Um, I, I'm things are a little bit messed up. Like even right now, I'm trying to tinker with my screen. I'm not, a, as you can see, I'm not at home. As I warned last week, I'm on the road. Um, so uh, there's. Um, uh, oh for Philip it's in the morning. See Philip I, I was I was thinking of you uh when uh, when I said that. That's totally that's totally it. Um uh so since I'm on the road, my setup is not the same as it usually is, and so there might be some irregularities tonight. I might mess things up. Hope not too badly. But um anyway, we'll uh we'll try to we'll try to soldier we'll try to soldier through here. Okay. Um very good. Tonight we are going to am uh, going to try to get through the ending uh, of the book today. Um, I can't make any promises about Buttercup's baby. I'm quite skeptical. We're going to get to that today, uh, but um, uh, but anyway, I am going to try to see if we can get through the end of the book today. Um, uh, brief uh, uh, announcements. Um, the main announcement uh, for this week. Um, I've been having a a lot of fun talking about LOTRO stuff this week. I'm actually this week at a conference and what I'm I'm doing is I'm at this academic conference uh, for uh, technology and new media in teaching uh, giving a plenary address on uh, Mythcarta at at LOTRO, actually, on our LOTRO activities, my Twitch channel and all that stuff and sort of talking about teaching in a virtual environment uh, with our LOTRO activities uh, as an illustration. It's been a lot of fun. I did. Uh, I did two the last two days. I've done a sort of a live demo. Some people from within the game got together, and we did a, a sort of a, a discussion class session uh, within the game world and interacting with it. It's been really, it's been really cool. So uh, this has been kind of a fun week uh, with that stuff. But the big, uh, the big uh, announcement slash reminder this week is the Silmarillion Film Project. The Silmarillion Film Project is of course starting this week in a mere two days, two days from right now. uh, We are starting the Silmarillion Film Project discussion, so I hope that you'll be able to join me for that. Um, uh, uh, I'm I'm, I'm very excited to finally get that off the ground. I'm traveling earlier in the day, so I'm hoping I don't have any travel disasters that uh might prevent me getting getting to my computer on time uh on Friday night. But I'm uh, I'm 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 right now kind of hoping for the best. Uh but anyway, I hope that uh, many of you are gonna be able to uh uh to to join me uh in uh, uh on the Silmarillion Film Project Discussion uh on Friday. So um, yes, uh, Nancy, it is going to be recorded and posted to the Tolkien Professor podcast feed. Uh, that's where the Tolkien, that's where the film project is going to live. So, um, uh, no, no worries about that. Um, and actually, as we'll be explaining in the first episode, um, the Summerlin film project is going to be much more proactively interactive uh, with people. Um, we're going to do a lot more is sort of giving assignments to people ha- having questions for you guys to think about and uh comment on and um you know give us your thoughts about between episodes so that we can come back and and discuss some of those things at the beginning of the next time um, there's going to be a lot more of that kind of active um uh, sort of direction on our part active seeking of uh of discussion and contributions from uh from the listeners so um so anyway there'll be there'll be lots of opportunities uh for that kind of thing so that it should also be fun and, anyway, all right. Let's talk about the end of the Princess Bride. Um, I've uh, titled this class "What This Book Says." Of course, I'm 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 quoting, nearly quoting um, that part when the when Goldman's narrator interrupts the story to say, "Here's what the book says." Right? He gives us his final sort of interpretation. Remember how he's been doing. Interpretation of Morgan Stern's book at various points, telling us here's what the here's what's really going on. Here's what I think uh, Morgan Stern is really getting at. Uh, of course, casting uh, skepticism upon uh, what the uh, what the Columbia academics say about Morgan Stern, and he's telling us the real deal. What uh, you know, what really sort of activates him. So we'll get to that uh, stuff. Um, my goal is to is to end there. For class tonight, what I want to do is three things. First, I want to return to what we talked about back in class number two. You may remember in class number two, we were looking at... that was our our, our sort of buttercup case study um, uh, class, as we were going through and trying to figure out where we are as readers, where this book is positioning us as readers. Um, with relationship to Buttercup, and by extension to the whole sort of fairy tale structure, the whole fairy tale premise of the story, um, and um, and we got up through where she left Wesley at the end of the fire slump, and, uh, and you may remember, I felt that that passage was a bit of a crisis, right? Um, that uh, before that point, there were times when she se- when she clearly seemed to be uh, um, established for for mockery, where she was clearly an object of satire, as I said in that class where we were at, laughing at her and not with her, um, especially in the early stages. But as we were looking at those passages, I felt anyway, through the course of class two, um, that Buttercup kind of came off better than I expected. My impression upon reading it, even reading it twice, um, was that she didn't come off all that well. The more we thought about it and the more we looked at it, the more... Um, the more I felt it worked, and the more sympathetic I thought the story main t- re- remained uh, towards her, and more, the, re- the more respectful I thought the story remained for her, or at least enabled us sort of the freedom uh, to read her character that way. But that last scene, as I said, it does introduce a crisis, and it seemed to be the moment where one of two things were happening. Either he was doing something devious there. I mean, where it seems like Butter- Buttercup acts horribly in that moment, where she just simply leaves Wesley and uh, uh, and doesn't actually seem to care. It's almost like at that moment, that seems to be the moment where Buttercup herself seems to, like, throw in the towel on the whole fairy tale thing, right? Um, where she's like, yeah, true love, whatever, I want to stay alive. I'm going to go back to my uh, my sort of agreement with Humperdink because, you know, like, it's not great, but it was working out you know, um, and I'd rather stay alive. Um, either that's the moment at which he's pulling out the rug from under us if we did buy into the idea of Buttercup as an actual fairy tale heroine that we could, you know, whose story we could get behind, or he's being devious, right? And it still works, and she was faking it in some way, right? That You know, where that was a show that she's doing just in order to try to save Wesley's life, but she doesn't really mean it, right? Um, uh, one of those two things, and I said at the time that we're going to need to get gather more data and come back uh, to look at that. I mean, we, 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 it's not possible to judge that scene only from that scene. We need to see how that scene functions, because I, that that moment seems to me the real pivot point for Buttercup's character, right? I mean, that seems to be the hinge. We've got her story leading up to that. I mean, Wesley's death isn't the hinge, or, you know, reputed, purported death, earlier, you know, his disappearance. That's um, that, That's not the hinge. That moment after the fire swamp is, is, is to me, is the hinge. Um, so we'll, 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 we'll see, right? We'll see. And so, first thing we're going to do is we're going to continue that. We're going to look at at sort of Buttercup and Wesley's relationship through the end of the story. Then, in the second part of the class, we are going to discuss the endings, um, three different endings of the uh, story that we get, um, and then we're going to return to the narrative, the narrator's frame. And be thinking about Goldman the narrator, um, and in particular the very heavy handed interjections that he makes um, interruptions, commentaries that he makes in this latter portion of the book, as he's telling us what this book says um, so that's where we're that's where we're headed that's where we're going to get Doug on it um, uh, okay, so let's see um yeah yeah Branna We're gonna come back to that Branna's uh comparing that moment at the end of the fire swamp with buttercup between the book and the film brana will, will' will definitely definitely come back to that next time um, okay all right let's um Right. Several of you are asking questions, which are good questions. We'll come back to that stuff, but I, I, I don't want to jump to the stuff with Goldman and the narrator yet. Um, I want to. I want to. Let's let's finish with Buttercup. So, okay. Here's Buttercup and Humberdick. Um This is Buttercup has just been saying that Wesley can do anything uh, better than anybody else, right? Um, uh, and uh, you know that he's just you know he's 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 not so much wonderful as perfect, right? That, that that conversation. I think emotions are clouding your objectivity just a bit. This is Humberdink, of course. Do you actually think that there is nothing the fellow can't do? Buttercup thought for a while. It's not so much that there's nothing he can't do, it's more than he can do it all better than anyone else than anybody else can do it. The prince chuckled and smiled. In other words, for example, you mean if he wanted to hunt, he could outhunt, again, for example, someone such as myself. Oh, I would think that if he wanted to, he could quite easily, but he happens not to like hunting, at least to my knowledge. Though maybe he does. I don't know. I never knew he was so interested in mountain climbing, but he scaled the cliffs of insanity under most adverse conditions, and everyone agrees that that is not the easiest thing in the world to accomplish. Well, why don't we just begin our letter with Divine Wesley, and appeal to his sense of modesty, the prince suggested. Barakab began to write. Stopped. Does divine begin D-E or D-I? I'm not going to offer any comments on this passage. I want to hear your observations first. What do you think? What do we learn here? What do we do with this passage? Start with observations, concrete observations. What do you see here? What's relevant? What information do we have to work with? I agree. These are more. These are these are conclusions more than observations, but uh, yes, Michael, Brianna, um, uh, Michael says she's returning to Foolish Girl mode. Uh, Brianna says she sounds a lot more like early book Buttercup here. Um, yes, yes, agreed, agreed. Um, more, more. Specific observations. Sarah Powell, Buttercup's belief in Wesley is absolute. Yes. Yes, that's, that certainly seems true. Um, both Jennifer and uh, Jennifer Weisick and uh, Patrick, that he's been away for a long time, right? And she only had a short time with him there in the fire swamp uh, before they were separated. Um, so, yes, yes. Um, oh, Michael, that's a good observation. Humperdinck isn't named in this passage. He is referred to as the prince. That is an interesting touch, isn't it um the uh the way that that seems i mean it, it puts him in a particular light right um it's are the two of them are not interacting uh as as equals um okay more more good uh, Brianna had also been saying that she doesn't know much about whistling. um What about the prince's comments? What do we do with it? Where do the princess comments place us? Um, Sarah Lagarde points and Sarah, I think this is, a, this is a, an important point. Sarah Lagarde says the author's choice to show her as not entirely literate and perhaps foolishly trusting of Humperdinck takes Buttercup back to her depiction a few years ago. Yes, I agree. That, that, that is where I... One of the main things... I mean, the sort of apparent empty-headedness... I mean, you think of the... Um, uh, those are the two things that I would point to to say, yes, it does sound like this is relapsing Buttercup, right? Buttercup relapsing back, relapsing back to the point where, where she was when we were laughing at her. Um, first is tone. Um, the longer paragraph that she has those run-on sentences, you know, that that, that sort of breath-on sentence that she... I would think he... I would think if he wanted to, he could quite easily, but he happens not to lie, at least to my knowledge. But maybe he does. I don't know. I never knew he was so interested. You know, that, that, that tone there sounds very much like the... um what was I up to twenty minutes ago? Wow, my the, how much I love you since the last twenty minutes can just can't be compared to right. You know that speech. It, the, the tone to me is very similar. The way that she's kind of tumbling over herself uh, in what sounds like pretty, you know, just like empty-headed adoration of Westley. Um, that's not where she was. I mean, it was the change out of that mode that I found so striking in class number two when we were looking at that, and she seems back there. But, Sarah, I agree with you. That point at the end um, is one of two important conclusions that I... one of two important things I take from that last line. Um, Buttercup's response being does divine begin D-E or D-I? We're being invited to laugh at her because she's ignorant. Right? Um, And her ignorance about how to spell divine, it's a small thing, right? It's sort of a small dig at her, but I can use the position that it places us, right? We, we are, we're invited to be condescending towards Buttercup here. right? Um, if we were already inclined to kind of pat her on the head and say that's nice, you're kind of empty-headed after that speech, that, that impulse is reinforced by the fact that she's like, oh yes, does divine start the eye? She is just a foolish girl who doesn't really seem to know much. um At least, again, that's the impression that I get from this passage. I, I find it hard not to get that uh, from this passage. Um, especially when we look at the distinction between the prince's observations and hers, right? Um, they are not speaking, uh, they're not speaking on the same level here, right? At least we are communicating with each other. Um, Yes, Lee, exactly. She does not see the sarcasm of, a, of of Humperdinck. He is making fun of her, and she is completely unaware of it. Notice how the position that we're placed in here, we are part of the joke, right? It's like Humperdinck are laughing at Buttercup's expense. Um, Sarah Powell is making that point, um Hubbarding seems to be laughing at Buttercup and Wesley. He feels very much in control of the situation. Absolutely. Um, uh, I, I, look, look at um, look at, at at his words. I think your emotions are caught in your objectivity, just if it didn't include information for reasons of space, the stuff that came before it, right? But she's already been going on like this for some time. She's already made several of these wildly hyperbolic claims about Wesley, Right? Um, so I think you're cutting your objectivity just a bit. It's kind of a suavely sarcastic, witty thing for him to say, right? Especially since, in that, I don't know about you, but he's voicing my thought too, right? Um, do you actually think there's nothing the fellow can't do? The prince is providing us here a frame of reference from which to laugh at Buttercup, right? So here already we are, in a sense, on the prince's side, or rather, we're seeing. The way that buttercup seemed to be uh, very similar. Then he there's sort of the personal thing where he's sort of chuckling and smiling at her for not uh, for suggesting that you know Wesley would be as good a hunter as he is, right? And here we can see you know Humperdinck does come in for some mockery from us here, right? As we see him being sensitive on his uh, his on the subject of his own particular hobby horse, but his next comment is hysterical. I mean, it is that that is a you know that. Why don't we just begin our letter with Divine Wesley and appeal to his sense of modesty? That is a rapier stab, the satire in that. Right? It's cutting, this is hysteric, right? Uh, and she it goes way over her head. So far over her head that she doesn't even pause, right? But <laughs> the idea that calling him divine would appeal to his sense of modesty, presumably compared to all the other things that she you know that. I mean, he's obviously making fun of of how uh, over the top her compliments are. If calling him divine is uh, is sort of a comparatively modest statement, right? Um, and and she flat doesn't get it. I get it, right? You know, I, I get as a reader, I'm laughing along at Buttercup with Humperdinck here, which is an uncomfortable place to be in one way, but it, it's it's it's. I don't see any way around it. Um... She looks like a complete airhead in this passage, um, and that's and then that's emphasized by the fact. So that was, you know, Sarah. I was saying there are two reasons why I think that last line is so important. The the, the point that you made is one is one of is one reason. The other is that it absolutely reinforces that perception of it going. Here, this is how far it went over her head, right? Not only does she so not get it, she's just immediately saying, oh, that's a great opening to the letter. Divine! Oh, but wait, I don't know how to spell divine, right? Um, I I mean, I think it's um, it's it's awful. Uh, That is, it puts her in a really um, awful light. Um, Yeah. Anyway, um, now Arthur says, is she unaware of it, or is she twisting it and mocking him? Okay, Arthur, let me try. Let me try. Can we formulate a reading in which she's actually being superiorly cunning and just baiting him? I don't buy it. I can't even do it. I don't buy it. It's theoretically possible. Theoretically possible. Right? Um, But it takes a lot of believing it takes a lot of believing uh, as the gaffer would say um i uh um, i can't buy it it's in theory you can make it work i think but uh but i don't think i, I don't i i can't i can't buy it um uh, now jennifer you're right. Okay, Jennifer Weisick is wants to remind us that okay, Buttercup may be naive, and Humperdinck may be making fun of her. But to be fair, Buttercup is quite right about Wesley. He did climb the cliffs of insanity better than anyone else. He bested the best swordsman and and, and overcame you know outstrengthened the, the, the strongest guy and uh, and you know beat, and 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 outthunk Vicini and and made it through the fire swamp. Right. I mean, so um, in fact, of course, one of the other. Th- but Jennifer, I guess all I would say here is that if anything this doesn't save Buttercup. Rather, it extends the mockery to Wesley or rather to that whole fairy tale world. Remember, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to study Buttercup as a case study in class number two is to see sort of where we as readers were being placed in relationship to the sort of fairy tale genre story that he seemed to be telling, Morgan seemed to be telling. Um, And uh, if we are being invited to kind of laugh at the over-idealized Wesley. Well, again, that's that's the sort of the fairy. He's the he's the de, he's the he's the male lead, right? He's the he's the hero. He's the shiny, knight in shining armor, except it's not armor. But anyway, you know, you know, it's a pirate instead of knight, I guess. Um, but pirates are kind of romantic in their own way, right? Um, uh, so it does it does sort of invite us. Um, uh, to laugh at the entire thing, right? Yeah, on the one hand, yeah, she is being accurate in a sense that he does, so far as we have seen, he is, in fact, better at everything than anybody else. We've never seen him yet fail to be better at something than anybody else. But, um, but again, I don't think that redeems her. I think it just broadens the satire there. Um, and so now, again, whereas in Class 2, uh, you know, leading up to that central moment... Um, to that pivot point at the end of the fire swamp i was I was beginning to be willing to buy into it. um I can remember the, one of the things that I was asking was how 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 distant does the story keep us from the fairy tale story? Does it allow us to invest in these characters? Does it allow us to care about this story or does it simply ask us to laugh at it all the way through? Um, my answer initially in that front half was it it, it is letting us get closer. But this isn't, even, even so, so even the truth of that, even the sort of technical accuracy of those um, uh, doesn't really change, it, it, it makes that worse in my mind, rather than, rather than better. Um, Kate Neville asks a great question. Are, are we then to conclude that the love between Wesley and Buttercup is a trivial thing? Or is this a commentary on the modern world's inability to appreciate it? Excellent question. Um, That's the problem, right? Um, Inasmuch as we are distanced from it, inasmuch as we are invited to sort of laugh at the whole thing. And by the fairy tale thing, when I talk about the fairy tale thing, what I'm principally talking about is the true love story, right? Um, the, 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 The story of true love between Wesley and Buttercup That's primarily what I'm talking about when I talk about the fairy tale thing, the fairy tale story. Um, Remember, in the last class, the Fezzik and Inigo class, right? That was a story from which we were not distant at any point, right? We are brought in close to Fezzik and Inigo from beginning to end. They are never really made fun of, and their stories resolve, and everything works out happily, and the, I mean no. So their character, or the character arcs that I was trying to show in class last time, um, in as much as that is sort of part of the fairy tale story, if we think about it as a sort of a separate fairy tale story, they work, right? Um, and I don't think we're laughing at Fezzik and Inigo at all. It's Buttercup and Wesley that I think are in a different place, and and that's I think one of the things that we that we that we see here. Um, uh, let's keep going. Oh, and of course, we, we also, the, uh, one, okay, one, one, one small last thing. The fact that she seems to be, that Humperdin's comments seem to be going so far over her head, her head is made the more cunning, I think, um, cutting, that is, by the fact that he's using her, right? You know, he's helping her compose this letter, and we know, you know, Morgan Stern has told us that he's betraying her, that he's lying to her, that he's manipulating her, and that she appears to be just blithely going along with it and not aware at all that she's being manipulated, um, not even to suspect that she's being manipulated. Um, you know, right after this is the scene where the two the two of them spend four hours composing the, uh, the letter together, right? Um, and she just has a wonderful time, and and she you know so she and uh, she and uh, uh, and and the prince are just. Having a wonderful time. Um, let's see. Jennifer says, how old is she supposed to be at this point? How much time has passed? It's been a few years, right? She's in her early 20s now? Is that right? I think that's right. I can't remember a number being mentioned. Three years of training, Sarah. Thank you. So 21. Good. Good. Yeah, that's right. I knew there was a number of the years. So I couldn't remember if it was three or five. Um, okay. This is after she does, finally, discover that she has been betrayed and that Hubbarding has been lying to her this whole time. It doesn't matter, matter whether you sent the ships or not. Wesley will come for me. There is a god. I know that. And there is love. I know that, too. So Wesley will save me. You're a silly girl. Now go to your room. Yes, I am a silly girl. And yes, again, I will go to my room. And you are a coward with a heart filled with nothing but fear. The prince had to laugh. "'the greatest hunter in the world, and you say I am a coward?' "'I do. I do indeed. I'm getting much smarter as I age. "'I say you are a coward, and you are. "'I think you hunt only to reassure yourself that you are not what you are, "'the weakest thing to to ever walk the earth. "'He will come for me, and then we will be gone, "'and you will be helpless for all your hunting, "'because Wesley and I are joined by the bond of love, that, "'and you cannot track that, not with a thousand bloodhounds, "'and you cannot break it, not with a thousand swords.' Humperdinck screamed towards her then, ripping at her autumn hair, yanking her from her feet, and down the long curving corridor to her room, where he tore that door open and threw her inside, and locked her there, and started running for the underground entrance to the Zoo of Death. This is, of course, the moment where his father interrupts and refuses to read on. Observations? What do you see here? One uh, Small point. Of course, those of you who know the movie recognize uh, some of the lines here, in particular the the business about the the hounds and the swords there at the end, right? Um, Which is, in my mind, noteworthy. As I think I made the point last time, you notice what percentage of Inigo, like the Percentage of the lines given to Inigo and Fezzik are straight from the book compared to the number of lines that Buttercup and Wesley have that are straight from the book. Um, Very much more of Inigo and Fezzik's dialogue has survived, direct. Whereas we don't come across that nearly so often with Wesley and Buttercup. Um, At least I think. That's my impression upon reading it, but I haven't studied it. So here's a little challenge to all you digital people out there. Measure. Want to measure? That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Um, Show me the comparative percentage of overlap between the dialogue uh, of Buttercup and Wesley compared to the dialogue of Fessick and Indigo. I'm just going to throw out that challenge. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, I don't have time to make that comparison, but I'd be interested to see if maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Could be. It's possible I'm wrong. Um, I'm not going to say I'm like Humperdinck if I'm wrong and I'm never wrong. Um, I'm often wrong, unlike Humperdinck. So, um, uh, but uh, that's my impression. Uh, so anyway, we'll see. Okay. Um, observations. Um, Patrick notes that she's in on the superlatives again. Weakest thing ever to walk the Earth. Um... Nancy, I partially agree with you that Buttercup is right here um, is Humperdinck a coward? Yes, we see him act in a cowardly. he's proven a coward later when uh, uh when he confronts Wesley so that is true um are his are the superlatives that she gives in fact accurate? Is he the weakest thing ever to walk the earth? That's harder. Harder to maintain. Um, Sorry. That's my... I'm trying not to make references to the movie face. Um... I can't help it. Um, I can't help it. Referring to the movie as a frame of reference here. I can't get the movie out of my head in this moment. And the contrast between what she says in the movie and what she says in the book here, I find really striking. Um, She, in the movie, talks about how horrible he is, how despicable he is, right? Her words in the film to him Are a rejection of him. Um, This, what you that you are the weakest thing ever to walk the earth. It's a it's a descriptor, and it isn't true. In what sense is that true? Is he a coward? Sure, yeah, okay, we can say prove these okay, but that's not right. I mean. Yeah, I agree. Many of you are emphasizing, and I agree with you generally that she's seeing through Humperdinck here. That she's correctly calling him out. That you know we're supposed to take her more seriously here because we see him. Uh, you know, we see that she gets to him, and the strength of his reaction suggests that you know she really hit a nerve here. Um, I, 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 in general, I agree that is the effect of this scene. But when I go through to the statement at the center of what she says. Um, When she says, okay, I've seen through, here is the core of who you are, the weakest thing to ever walk the earth. I'm like, eh, kind of. I mean, I guess. I don't think she's seen through to the center of Humperdinck there. That doesn't seem to me an extremely insightful thing to say. It sounds like a hyperbolic insult to make. Um, and it stings, obviously, uh, but I don't see this as, like, ooh, like the wisdom and cunning of Buttercup. That doesn't sound to me like a a, a cunning and wise thing to say at all. Um, That she has perceived that he's a coward, you know, there's some insight there, I think. I'm willing to grant her insight there. But I I guess I I find myself continuing to stumble over the statement at the core of uh, of her um, of her accusation, um, yeah, Philip says certainly he is strong in his dominion over animals. I mean yeah I, so I can't I mean obviously. I mean I, I say obviously, it seems to me pretty obvious that when she says this, I can't help but remember the what was it an orangutan? What was the 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 gorilla? Was it an orangutan, I think? Um that he's wrestling with uh when Count Rugen comes to tell him that his father's dying, right? And he says oh, bother I'll have to get married. Um, so I mean we just earlier on saw him like snap the spine of a of a great ape with his bare hands right we know he's not actually physically a weakling right um i think you, know, you can say you can you can say what you like about his moral character you can say that he's a coward can be made to stick weakling even if you say, say okay well he's like physically strong but he's not like you know strong in other ways but he is strong in some other ways i mean he's um, you know he's 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 devious and he's resolute and he you know carries his um, you know he carries his plans through as well as he as much as he can you know through to completion. Um, we see that through till the very end of the book. I, I just I can't I I don't buy the central insult and the, it bothers me. It bothers me because if that were different, as they made it different in the movie, if that were different then I would I I would be willing to take this as like a checkpoint in Buttercup's favor, right? But I can't do that wholeheartedly, because the statement she makes in the middle sounds to me more like the stuff she was saying in the last passage. The weakest thing ever to walk the earth. No, you're not. Coward, okay. No, stick with coward, right? Talk about how how you despise him, how unworthy he is, you know, of your regard, to, you know, how you know, how he's a worm compared to to Wesley. Stick with that, right? Um, but I don't know. Um, Nancy asks, so is she getting smarter as she ages? No, and that's one of my least favorite lines of hers in the whole book, right? Um, I, I, um, I mean, like, and maybe it's because I have an intuitive distrust of anybody who tells me how smart they are, right? But um, that is, I, I have an intuitive skepticism of the intelligence of anyone who tells me how smart they are. Um, but, but I mean, again, in that way, I do. I do indeed. I'm getting much smarter as I age. Maybe that's one, actually one of the reasons why I, you know, that her saying that he's a coward, which does seem to me to be insightful, is framed. I mean, it's, it's sandwiched between two things which sound to me empty-headed. I'm getting smarter. As, I'm getting much smarter as I age. Um, and you were the weakest thing to ever walk the earth. I, I um, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to make too much of I'm not trying to just condemn her on the strength of this. But when I'm asking the question, how, how close are we allowed to get for this? Are we are we being prompted? To, I mean, to put it in really crude terms, are we cheering for Buttercup or are we laughing at her? Right. I mean, it's great that she finally saw through him. Um, I think she'd much she'd be much smarter if she'd seen through him oh say from the first moment he promised not to kill wesley right wesley sees through it from that moment he knows full well what's going on in the moment that that transaction is happening right we see that in his conversation with count rugen um i i i just um and as you see i'm not really i'm not really uh i'm not really convinced um and as for her getting under his skin, I mean, his uh, sort of lacking in emotional control and getting upset here uh, is is uh, you know basically the fact that the prince has a fragile ego doesn't prove to me that she's smart or that I should be cheering for her, you know, or that like I, I, I'm do you see what I mean? I don't that does I I don't feel like that gets me any closer to her. I don't feel like it gets me any closer to. Um, investing, again, in that love story, in the true love story. Um, Kate says, she keeps coming back to this, if Buttercup is just a pretty airhead, why would Wesley still love her? He is clearly not an airhead. Agreed, Kate. A question that I have, too. Um, And which I can't help but think, because remember, the passages we're not talking about are the passages of Wesley being tortured and thinking about her. Right, and taking refuge in his thoughts of her. Um, and it's, you know, it's only fair to sort of consider those. Um, it's interesting there that what he's taking refuge in, refuge in is the image of her. It's a fictional version of her. In fact, within this fairy tale story, he's creating a sort of a fairy tale version of him and of her of their relationship in his own head, and he's. Doing an escapist thing with that fairy tale in his own mind while he's being tortured right um, and that strikes me as kind of interesting here um, but uh but Kate, I agree with you we we'll, we'll we'll come back and uh and and, and see this um, yeah um, Lee says wesley loves her beauty that is what he keeps. Talking about, right? Um, that is what he emphasizes. We can't, we can't, um, uh, can't avoid that fact that when Wesley thinks of her, it's her beauty that he continually thinks of. Um, uh, good, Nancy says. The thoughts in which he takes refuge are largely physical, uh, with some ego stroking mixed in. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, Carolyn Morehouse says, as the story progresses, Buttercup's character should be expanding and growing, but instead she seems to be folding up and becoming more one-dimensional as the story progresses. I agree, Carolyn. I, that's that's what it seems like to me. Like I'm sorry, throughout this whole section where she's being hoodwinked um, by Humperdinck, uh, I, I, I I mean compared to the relative sophistication we were beginning to see in buttercup in the second half of the first part you know in the in the in the okay i won't say the second half of the first half <laughs> in the first half of the uh, you know over the course of the first half of the book i mean i, I, I carolyn i don't know, i guess i'd be even i'd say it even more strongly um, uh, that uh, uh, that i mean it's there are moments when i'm like listening to her talk like especially the the the, the previous passage where i'm like like when did, when did, like, Buttercup get lobotomized? Like, she didn't used to talk, she used to talk like that way back at the beginning, but she didn't talk like that afterwards. After she comes out of her room and mourning Wesley, she doesn't talk like that anymore. Until now. And now she does. Suddenly. All of a sudden. Now, Kate Neville says, well, if it's only her beauty that he's interested in, then he is an airhead. Yeah. And smart, but uh, foolish. Perhaps. Perhaps. But again, see, Kate, then where are we with the true love story? Right? Um if she is a dreamy, air-headed girl who just has this, you know, sort of pie-in-the-sky idea of him, and he is sitting there thinking, she's so pretty, she's so pretty, she's so pretty, and that, wherein lies the true love? Where is the truth of this love, right? Um, what kind of a true love story is this? That begins to, you know, the needle seems to be swinging straight back towards, no, it's just satire. So this is her... Her, sure, her continued certainty that Wesley is going to rescue her. Um, uh, you know, so remember how she was speaking very confidently uh, throughout the lead-up to the marriage that Wesley is going to come. It was 5.30 when the prince stood up and approached the Archdean firmly. Man and wife, he shouted. Man and wife, say that! I've not arrived there yet, the Archdean answered. you just arrived, the prince replied. Now! Buttercup could picture Wesley rounding the final corner. There were four guards outside waiting. At ten seconds per guard, she began figuring, but then stopped, because numbers had always been her enemy. She looked down at her hands. Oh, I hope he still thinks I'm pretty, she thought. Those nightmares took a lot out of me. Man and wife, you're man and wife, the Argentine said. Um, <laughs> Nancy says the real uh, love story uh, in the book is Valerie and Max. Uh, an eminently supportable statement, I think. Uh, uh, that's an argument that I think uh, uh has legs I really do um karita yeah the i oh I hope he still thinks I'm pretty that line kind of kind of kind of kind of kills me too um I'm sorry I'm still going with airhead here right um I I, I I find it harder and harder this is the time when I should be sympathizing with her most right um if I'm gonna get Behind This is the climax. Meanwhile, Inigo's story is coming to a quite satisfying climax, and I'm all with Inigo, and I'm not with Buttercup here at all. Um, notice what she's doing. She's living in this fantasy world. She's taking refuge. Notice the parallel between this and the torture scenes with Wesley? That's kind of nice. But, but you see the parallel? Both of them are living in a fantasy world right? I'm getting married to Humperdinck, except I'm not getting married to Humperdinck. Wesley is right outside, and and if I were smarter, I would be able to calculate exactly how long it would take him to get in here, right, and get past the four guards. Um, uh, um, But it's all, again, I, I find it hard to maintain that any real investment in the true love story, um, is happening. It's not to say that you can't get interested in other ways but I can't see that it seems more and more as we get closer to the end the satire of the true love characters and the true love story seems sharper and sharper. Um, Sarah Powell and Karina were both suggesting that uh, you know, of course Fezzik and Inigo are the real love story um, absolutely. Yeah, the Fezzik and Inigo bromance, totally with you they're the core of the whole book What can you say? Um, But, um... Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, Thomas Johnson says, Buttercup recognizes, as she did in the Fire Swamp, that Wesley's love for her is based on her beauty rather than her intellect, an intellect which this passage, once again, underlines as unimpressive. Um, Yeah, yeah. But again, see, Thomas, if that's where we end up, right, that, you know... uh, she would kind of wish that he would like her for her brains as well as for her uh, beauty, except she doesn't seem to have that many brains, right? So where are we then, right? I mean, it's, um... What about the marriage? Careful. This is a trick question. Is, uh... Is she married to Humperdinck? <laughs> Sarah King got the right answer. No, she's maui um, Yes, yes, she is married. Um, the business about them not saying vows isn't, is uh, that's in the movie, it's not in the book. That's, a, that's an innovation in the book. Wesley doesn't say anything about if you didn't say it, you didn't do it, right? Um, and your marriage is not official. Remember, what does Wesley say in the book in that same moment? What does he say in the book? Again, all of you who are saying she didn't say I do. That's the movie's rationale. Nobody in the book says that. Nobody in the book says that. What they do say in the book is they call him her husband in the book. Um. after the scene with a confrontation with Wesley. Widows happen, exactly. That's what Wesley says in the book, Brian Yoder's Got It. He says widows happen. He does recognize their marriage, but he says widows happen, right? Absolutely. And Nancy, yes, she says that she is the queen. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, there is no... If we didn't have the movie we would have no indication that there's any question about the officialness of their wedding. Again, that is a change, and I think a very significant change, and we'll come back and talk about this uh, next week or the week after, um, with, uh, with the, when we talk about the movie. But it's, it's Michael says, but he doesn't kill Humperdinck. I know! I know! Strange, isn't it? Given that he had just said that, you'd think he'd be motivated to make her a widow, having just recognized that he needs to do that, and it's easy enough, right? Oh, are you married to him? That's not a problem. I'll just kill him, and then we can get married. Right? They've not even consummated the marriage yet, no problem, right? Um, but uh, anyway, that, that, that's, I, 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 that's an important, important thing, I think, in the book. Um, uh, so Buttercup's baby is illegitimate. Heck yeah! I mean, as far as I can tell, that seems to be true. Again, convince me I'm wrong, but, um, but I don't see... Is there a single reference in the book to the illegitimacy of her marriage with Humperdinck? I didn't catch one. I was looking the second time, but I, I didn't... And yes, Gerald, isn't it ironic that the Dread Pirate Roberts leaves Humperdinck alive? Right? Yeah, he's not supposed to leave any survivors, as we were just reminded uh, with the, the sort of masquerade that Fezzik does, right, on the way in the gate, no survivors, no survivors, um, and yet there he left Hoverdink alive on purpose, um, despite the fact that he had recognized that he is her husband. Um, uh, Rachel says annulments happened too, and there was no consummation. Absolutely, by by medieval law, they're not officially married until until the 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 the, uh, the marriage is, is consummated. Um, absolutely, but again, never mentioned in the book. Right? We can we can get all hair splitting with it. You know, we can play uh, lawyer whether it's medieval lawyer or modern lawyer with it. But that's that the, the book doesn't do that. Um. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, Kate uh, Neville says uh, you know Wesley's a pirate. Also, clearly, he and Buttercup are not too concerned with the niceties of society. No, absolutely, uh, that, that that seems to be the point, right? That um, they, they they don't either one of them care whether or not she was officially married to Humperdinck. Um That doesn't it's 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 a non factor at the end of the story. Um, but um, <laughs> yeah, it's Patrick Summers wondering if Miracle Max is a good divorce lawyer. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Oh, sorry. Let's look at her disappointment. I, I better move along or we're not gonna we're not gonna oh, we we're not going we are not going to we we are not going to get through here. Buttercup for her part walked very slowly and peacefully between the old king and queen. There was no need ever to worry, not with Wesley there to stop her wedding and take her away forever. The truth of her situation did not take genuine effect until she was halfway to Humperdinck's room. There was no Wesley. As it takes that long for like reality to penetrate, she was thoroughly living in that fantasy world. Right, her mind had gone away very much like Wesley's while he was being tortured. No, sweet Wesley, he had not seen fit to come for her. She gave a terrible sigh, not so much of sadness as of farewell. Once she got to Humperdinck's room, it would be—it would all be done. He had a splendid collection of swords and cutlery. She had never seriously contemplated suicide before. Oh, of course she'd thought about it. Every girl does from time to time, but never seriously. To her quiet surprise, she found it was going to be the easiest thing in the world. She reached the prince's chamber, said goodnight to the royal family, and went directly to the wall display of weaponry. The time was then 5.46. Okay. Um, what do we see? What do we see here? Nancy, I also find the casual assertion that every girl thinks about suicide from time to time a little bit distressing. Yeah, I uh, was bothered by that statement, too. Um, Help me remember. Didn't she hear the screaming outside? am I remembering correctly that she hears the screaming outside the gate, you know, when Fezzik is doing his Dread Pirate Roberts impersonation, um, and thinks Wesley's coming? Am I right about that? Did that happen? Good, yeah, Nancy says, yeah, she said, there is my Wesley now, yes. Okay, good, that's what I thought. Um, Which I'm afraid makes me think less of her here uh, uh, than otherwise. Um he had not seen fit to come for her. It's like, wait, but uh, don't you remember? There was a commotion, right? In fact, she was correct, as we know. Wesley is coming for her. And the, the and she has heard this great commotion and seen first the Count and then the Prince go rushing off. Um, something seems to be happening, and yet she thinks that all is lost. But get not just all is lost. She's not like, Wesley didn't make it in time. That's not her thought. She's like, he had not seen fit to come for her. Now, like the actual data that she had, like the commotion that she heard outside, like, somebody's trying to break into the castle. Um, She was all certain before, right? Wesley is coming for me, my sweet Wesley, my divine Wesley is coming to rescue me. And there was evidence to support that, right? Something, in fact, was happening. Somebody was trying to break into the castle right at the time of of her wedding, right? Which was, in fact, Wesley. But now she's emerged from the fantasy world, and she has forgotten all of those things. Um... Uh, <laughs> Nancy says she's changed her mind about what story she's in. The evidence doesn't matter. Well, yeah, she's now in Romeo and Juliet, right? I guess, yeah, so. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Lynn says before she could live without love, what changed? Um, yeah, yeah. Um Carolyn says it never seems to occur to Buttercup that she could rescue herself. Uh, no, it doesn't. But you know, Carolyn, I'm not like Carolyn. You're right. Like you know, Luthien to she ain't. I, I totally. You know, there there are no two ways about that. Um, but that's an unfair standard, right? I mean, I'm not going to hold her to that standard. I'm 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 okay with her not, you know, becoming a. A, you know, a warrior princess and 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 uh, swashbuckling her way out of the castle, or even like dropping herself out the window uh, on whether it be on her hair or on uh, a sheet. But um, again, I don't mind. I don't, I don't hold that against her. In a sense, or that is to say, I don't. The reason I don't hold that against her is that that does not seem to me to be intrinsic to the true love. Story right. My my main question through this is not like is this story going the way that I would wish that it would go or that I would like it to go, but rather where am I being placed in relationship to the true love story and to the to and to those characters right? And that doesn't seem to me to be essential to be uh, in support of the true love story. Um, just. It could end like Romeo and Juliet, and that wouldn't undermine it uh, uh, in my mind necessarily. I mean, like if we end, if we were to end the, if if this story were to end with a double suicide of Buttercup and Wesley, it would be a different story, uh, but that, but it wouldn't be necessarily more satirical or I, you know that wouldn't necessarily distance me from it. It might bring me closer to it in grief and sorrow, um, but. Uh, so, so again, I don't, uh, I, I don't see her inaction as necessarily, um, necessarily uh, off-putting to me in that way, um, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, let's keep going. Got it wrong, okay, two passages from when they are reunited. I'm going to tell you something once, and then whether you die or not is strictly up to you, Wesley said, lying pleasantly on the bed. Across the room the prince held the sword high. This is of course he's talking to he's talking to I'm What I'm going to tell you is this drop your sword, and if you do, then I will leave with this baggage here, he glanced at Buttercup, and you will be tied up, but not fatally, and will soon be free to go about your business. And if you choose to fight, well then we will not both leave alive. Yes, this baggage here is what he has called his... Now, he's talking to Humperdinck, right? I am, in theory, willing to believe that he doesn't mean it, right? Uh, Arthur, right, he could be feigning disinterest. Um, He could be joking. All right, let's um, let's let, let's let's explore three theories here. Okay. Um, theory number one: He's joking, and he's saying that he doesn't mean it, right? He's 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 sort of making a coarse joke. Uh, option two: He's being deceptive, right? He's trying to convince uh, Humberdink that he doesn't really care about Buttercup, that there's nothing in particular between them. Kind of like the argument we were trying to make to defend Buttercup when she left him in the fire smoke, right? Uh, Option three, he is, in fact, uh, showing some disregard for Buttercup here. Can you think of any other really viable interpretations? Um, I can't offhand, but I'm open to a fourth, uh, if you can think of it. So, okay. Um, Joking. Let's look at those. What would each of one of those look like? Um, why would he be joking? Just like making just making a joke, just like saying something amusing? Why would he be doing, like for whom? for what audience is he trying to make comforting laugh? right? Is this a joke he's sharing between the boys at her expense? It Sounds kind of like that, right? Um, you know, like one man to another as we laugh at the woman on the floor, you know uh, that he's invoking that kind of spirit? I mean. Uh, maybe, but like seriously, that that's the he, he's going to establish that kind of repartee with with uh, 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 with uh, uh, Humperdinck at this moment. I can't uh, I can't see it. I can't see it. Um. Uh, so that I find I think the least convincing of the three. Um, the second is he's being he's being deceptive. He's being cunning, right, and trying to feign as if he doesn't care. Why? What does he get out of that? What's the point? I don't see what end is possibly served by that. When we were constructing a reading like that back in the fire swamp, at least there was a sense in which it could work, right? If she's really uh, making an attempt to save his life. Um, I mean, it seems not really advisable, and it obviously doesn't work. but, um, but, But again, you can at least kind of give her credit to say, like, okay, She's kind of doing what she can, right, to save his life. Again, in theory, it might kind of at least there's a chance that it would work or would make sense to somebody. How does it? How does it make sense here? Does it make any sense to me at all? Uh, Humperdinck knows full well what is between them, right? Uh, There's no question of deceiving Humperdinck into thinking that there's nothing between them, uh, and no need. Why on earth would they? I mean, he's either he's he's what what would be his goal? Is he because? Humberding going to be like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, so it's no big deal. Go ahead and take her. I mean, like, what possible outcome uh, could come for that? What, 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 what is sort of this? St- what, 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 would the strategy be? Um, uh, Kate Neville suggesting he's talking to Humberding on his own level. He Humperdinck, views her as baggage. Um, maybe I mean you can see a way in which it reflects Humperdinck's own viewpoint why? why? why would he do that? Um, uh, Ian BioX says wouldn't it help Wesley to act more like a pirate if he's going to fight to death against the prince I mean it's kind of piratical right? Uh, I guess, to be all callous and everything. It's part of the pirate shtick we're led to believe, right? Um, Yeah, Brian Yoder was suggesting a similar thing. He's building up the Dread Pirate, uh, Robert's character bluff. Uh, Except, I, I I just, I don't see how it contributes to convincing humperdinck if it's part of his gambit to intimidate humperdinck how is that i mean that, so i don't care about her so that's why you, you can be even more sure that i really mean it and that i'm totally going to kill you because you see what you know what a uh, uh, you know what a what a bad boy pirate i am um but isn't saying i don't actually care about her at all decreasing the seriousness of it you know and being like you know it, suggesting to Humperdinck... I mean, to me, it more suggests weakness, right? Like, why would I fight for the death over mere baggage, right? Um... Um... um, Carolyn uh, Morehouse says that she thinks Wesley's absolutely serious, uh, that for quite some time, Buttercup has officially become the load of the story. Buttercup is the pirate trophy wife. Um... You know, eh... Arthur says... uh, Arthur thinks he's sending a message to Buttercup. Uh, I have come for you, but you need to get over yourself. Um, Maybe, maybe. Um, Nancy thinks that honestly, she thinks Wesley is just mad at Buttercup and being misogynistic. uh, uh, Carita thinks maybe coming back from the dead just makes a person cranky. Um, yeah, I, I get... I, I can't see a way to construe it as a, an act on his part that is actually calculated to, to work. Or that doesn't... Even if it maybe build him up in one sense as looking, you know, really callous and intimidating. It it tears him down in other senses, but it undermines what he's trying to do in other senses. So if it is a piece of stratagem, I certainly can't concede that I that it seems a good one. Um, you know, that it, that it that it that it sort of seems to make sense. Um well let's look at the second my second passage here. Tie him, Wesley said to Buttercups, is after Humperdinck has surrendered. "'Tie him,' Wesley said to Buttercup. beat quick about it. Use the curtain sashes. "'They look enough to hold him.' "'You'd do it so much better,' Buttercup replied. "'I'll get the sashes, but I really think you should do the actual tying.' "'Woman,' Wesley roared. "'You are the property of the Dread Pirate Roberts, "'and you do what you're told!' Buttercup gathered the sashes and did what she could with tying up her husband. Hubbardink lay flat while she did it. He seemed strangely happy. "'I wasn't afraid of you,' he said to Wesley. "'I dropped my sword because it will be so much more pleasure for me to hunt you down.' Um, Now, okay, it's possible when he calls her woman and the property of the Dread Pirate Roberts and orders her to do what she's told, uh, notice how far we've come from farm boy, right? But anyway, uh, uh, the reversal of roles here at the end is interesting. Okay. Um, Let's say he's still putting on an act, right? He, he, this is, he is still he is still the hard bitten pirate, right? And he's acting the hard bitten pirate for whom he is being tied up right now. Wesley can't tie him up, right? Um, I'm actually more willing to accept this one as an act on his part than the other, because he, um, uh, he's he got to bluff here. He cannot rise from the bed and tie him up. Her insistence that he tie him her- himself is actually inconvenient and could ruin the whole thing, right? Um, so there is a need here for him to cover that up. And so he adopts a position of strength to say, like, the reason I am not getting up to tie him up myself is because my authority is not to be questioned, right? That could still, in theory, be to, for the benefit of Humperdinck, right? Who is not yet officially tied up. Okay. Yes. Yes. I'm willing to accept that. But really this that this is this is his only other this is his only other option i, I mean that's this is that's the best way out of the situation uh i um even if you successfully constructed an argument in defense of both of these comments, that is his reference to her as a baggage and uh, his um, uh, you know, roaring at her roaring woman at her even if you successfully defend both of those, and I'm, I'm not sold, especially on the first one not sold we still we still have that like, we can't, we cannot hear that. This is the climactic moment. This is the... Um, this is the reunion of the lovers that we've been... We have seen the two of them living in these fantasy worlds where they're being sustained by being separated from the real world, indwelling mentally upon their beloveds. And now they come together... And and we get these. Um, and again, maybe he's just being devious. And maybe the uh, yeah, yeah, baggage property isn't love grand. I still suggest. Does um, well. Well, there is that passage afterwards where he apologizes for ever speaking to her that way and of course she should know that he would never actually think that of her. Oh no, wait, he doesn't say that. They turn and say loving things to each other after this, right? But, I, but like, these words are still between them, right? This is still where he went. Seriously, there was no other way for him to assert his authority, for him to, to not show weakness in front of the prince, other than that? Um... <sighs> I uh, Again, when I come down and, and ask the question, where are we in relationship to the true love story, I, I can't see a satisfying ending to it. Um, th- again, put them side by side, right? Inigo's confrontation with Count Rugen. Fezix being the instrument of reuniting everybody and enabling them to escape. The reunion of Buttercup and Wesley after their long separation in many trials. Um, I, the contrast seems to me so clear, right? as far as, again, what's being made fun of and what isn't. Um, it seems to me that, at the very least, these references prevent us from they certainly cut through any possibility of like rose tinted music swelling you know romantic uh uh you know i'm i'm like now tearing up and and saying isn't that lovely um when they're coming together because it's not lovely when they come together um and I, again i feel that if i had any inclination to invest in the true love story in that way to believe in the in the fairy tale of true love it's being it's being undermined at the end. I can't do it. Even if I try and want to, I can't do it. Um, Sarah King says, this, so the fairy tale mindset actually brings out the worst in both of them? Maybe. Uh, maybe. Um, yeah, yeah. Neo, I like your observation. Save it. We're going to talk about the movie next time. You might be able to tell how like, hard I am having to restrain myself from talking about the movie because I really want to. But you know, I'm am I'm, I'm trying to be good. I'm saving it. Um. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. Let's look at uh, let's look outwards a little bit at the context here. Or rather, let's move ahead and look at the ending because it's coming from me. So we've got three endings. Um. I'm gonna we're gonna give these we look at these three endings in order. Uh. The barber's ending, as I call it, that is where. Uh, Goldman's father ended the book in his reading to to young Goldman. Uh, uh, right, that's that's the first ending. The second ending is Morgan Stern's actual ending, and the third ending is Goldman's ending. Right, he as the abridger comes in and gives his two cents at the end. Right, and I want to look at each of those three, and again see where are we at the end um, of uh, uh, of those. Uh, of these of these endings, and what are we supposed to do with the fact that this story has three different endings? Okay, so um, I actually think what I'm going to do here, I'm going to do something a little bit unorthodox. I want to read through all three of them, okay, um, and then I want I'll, I want to this will also give you plenty of time to make observations and tell me what you notice to be doing some comparison and contrasting. Um, but so rather than talk about them one at a time, I want to talk about them all three together. I suppose I was dying again, so I asked the lord of permanent affection for the strength to live the day. Clearly, the answer came in the affirmative. I didn't know there was such a fellow, Buttercup said. Neither did I, in truth, but if he didn't exist, I didn't much want to either. The four great horses seemed almost to fly toward Florin Channel. It appears to me as if we're doomed then, Buttercup said. Wesley looked at her. Doomed, madam? To be together, until one of us dies. Don't we sort of have to sometime? Not if we promise to outlive each other, and I make that promise now. Buttercup looked at him. Oh, my Wesley, so do I. And they lived happily ever after. We're told that he, that uh, his father added the end, they lived happily ever after. Okay, that is Goldman's father's ending of the story, right? That's where he cut it. Morgan Stern's ending. Buttercup looked at him. Oh, my Wesley, so do I. From behind them suddenly, closer than they had imagined, they could hear the roar of Humperdinck. Stop them! Cut them off! They were, admittedly, startled, but there was no reason for worry. They were on the fastest horses in the kingdom, and the lead was already theirs. However, this was before Inigo's wound reopened, and Wesley relapsed again, and Fezick took the wrong turn, and Buttercup's horse threw a shoe, and the night behind them was filled with a crescendoing sound of pursuit. The end. That's Morgan's ending. Goldman's ending. Well, I'm an abridger, so I'm entitled to a few ideas of my own. Did they make it? Was the pirate ship there? You can answer it for yourself, but for me, I say yes, it was. And yes, they got away, and got their strength back, and had lots of adventures, and more than their share of laughs. But that didn't mean—that doesn't mean I think they had a happy ending, either. Because in my opinion, anyway, they squabble a lot, and Buttercup lost her looks eventually, and one day Fezzik lost a fight, and some hotshot kid whipped Indigo with a sword, uh, Inigo with a sword, and Wesley was never was never able to really sleep sound because of Humperdinck maybe being on the trail. I'm not trying to make this a downer understand. I mean, I really do think that love is the best thing in the world, except for cough drops. But I also have to say, for the umpteenth time, that life isn't fair. It's just fairer than death. That's all. The end. Now. Please hear me here. Start with observations. This is, this is too much, right? Uh, too much to explain. We have to sum up. No, it's too much. Don't try to jump to conclusions. Observations. Tell me what things, concrete things you observe about where these three endings bring us at the end of the story. Then we'll try to draw some conclusions about where these three different levels, these, these three different layers of the story that Goldman is building from the beginning, where they bring us. Okay. Um, Thomas Johnson points out the Buttercup's phrasing here that they are doomed, doomed to be together, uh, adds a dissonant note to their otherwise sweet conversation, um, and supports narrator Goldman's prediction that their marriage will ultimately be an unhappy one. Um, uh, Yeah, yeah, it is is, uh, a... it is a moment there. Um, Okay good, more, more. Observations, concrete observations. Several of you are making conclusions. I don't want conclusions, I want observations. Okay, Karita points out the Buttercup asks several questions in the Barber's Ending, retaining her airhead status nicely. Yes, yes, she does. Um. More, more. You guys are doing conclusions. Don't do conclusions. What are the differences between these? Well, I, 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 I'm being... I'm 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 I'm, getting, I'm being pedantic and insistent upon this point because it's really easy uh, this is this is really complex stuff and of course it's tempting to jump to conclusions because that would help me get through all of my slides but but I don't want to do it because I think that this is really this is really important um Michael, that's a really interesting conclusion, but it's a conclusion, it's not an observation. Um, Good. Philip has an observation. Goldman asks the questions of what happens next. Okay. Um, His ending is premised upon the question of what happens next. Um, So, one thing that we see is that the endings are situated differently in time, right? Uh, The barber's ending cuts off before the end of the you know it decides earlier on we're gonna we're gonna, we're actively ignoring some parts of the story we're, we're so it's it is it is cutting out part of the story Morgan Stern's goes through to the end but does not have ask but it, it emphatically doesn't happen what ask what happens next right um, it forces you to try to guess what happens next it ends on a deliberate cliffhanger denying you information about what happens next right and Goldman's uh, ending is very interested in the future; is entirely focused on the question of what happens next, not only immediately but down the road. Right. So the interests of the three endings in relationship to time, therefore, are very different, and that seems to me a very, a very important thing. Um, Rachel, good question. Isn't a really entitled to a few ideas of his own? Uh, uh, yeah, Rachel, didn't he earlier on talk about, you know, in the context of not including that extra bit about, uh, you know, their reunion at the bottom of the gorge that you had to send in to the publisher for? Wasn't the whole argument there about the fact that he was not entitled as an abridger to add his own stuff? Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, good, Lynn was asking the same question. Good, good. Okay, Arthur says the barber gives us a clear ending, right? Um, at least in the sense uh, that is uh, yes. I mean, I, I'm I'm willing to to agree with that. He ends with their declaration of love for each other. Okay, Morgan Stern gives us an incomplete ending. Goldman departs completely from the story. That is, he he adds a whole bunch of sort of additional narrative or points to a bunch of additional narrative afterwards. Um, Good and Lynn points out he's not abridging; he's he's doing the opposite of abridging, right? So certainly, uh, what he's doing is is uh, does not is certainly obviously not the automatic right of an abridger, right? Kareeda um, says Morgan Stern seems to be the least like an actual ending. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Philip says Goldman goes on and on much like Buttercup does. Uh, yeah, certainly in, in in sort of sentence structure and everything. Um, more. Um, where does? Let's go back. Uh, let's scroll back here for a second. Where does the barber's ending leave us? Talked a little bit more about the about the, more. Concrete Observations. Where are we left? What is this ending about? Looking at this ending of the story. Considering this as an ending. What's this ending? <laughs> an ending of unbearable smarminess, uh, says Sarah King. <laughs> True of, yes, exactly. Um, Uh, Silly lovers' promises that they will outlive each other. Sarah Powell, uh, 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 that that very good, very specific observation. Um, uh, Sarah King, of course, is right that it's unbearably smarmy, uh, but you're right that it's, it's telling that the particular moment that it ends at is, in a sense, the most absurd moment in the whole thing, right? It's one thing, like, it doesn't just end with them declaring their undying fidelity for each other, right? That would be sort of, you know, squishy enough. Oh, yes, I will always be faithful to you, my Wesley. Oh, dear. Right? They're like, oh, we shall love each other always forever at, you know, at this incredibly intense rate, shan't we? But no, right? It ends with them promising never to die, right? Uh, if we promise that we'll outlive each other, then neither one of us will ever die. Really. That's how it works, is it? I mean, talk about escapism. Right, talk about. I mean, remember the two of them taking refuge in the true love romance idea, explicitly as a way to escape reality, right? Explicitly as a way to escape pain, psychological suffering on Buttercup's part, physical torture on Wesley's part. And where are they at the end? Back in that, emphatically, back in that fa- in that fantasy world. So Philip Menzies, it is the fairy tale ending, but it's a fairy tale ending. It's a particular version of that fairy tale ending. Right, emphasizing the extreme, uh, the sort of escapist nature of it, the unreality of the fairy tale ending. Um, yeah, and then of course, Thomas, as you remind me, the barber tacks on "they lived happily ever after," right? Um, the, the the traditional fairy tale style ending. Um, Okay, okay. Um, so good, Michael. There's <laughs> Michael. Thank you, Michael. I can see you trying to refine. I, I like your conclusion, by the way. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm trying to push for observations here. Um, uh, uh, and you guys understand why I'm doing this, right? This is, a, this is, you know, I'm, this is me being all pedantic and literature professor-y, right? You can only make conclusions based on observations. It's really dangerous to read something, form an impression, and then just go with it right? That's why we've been doing the analysis that we've been doing. That's why I, I, you know, am so insistent on close reading the way that I do things. Because you can come up with an impression and, and, you know, and and you can kind of spin a story from something, but what does that mean? Like, what is it good for? If If you can't root it explicitly, if you can't point to where it comes from in the story, then it might just be you. I mean, you just might be might be, you know, living in your own you know, sort of fantasy world there, which is fine. Like the story you come up with might be interesting, um, but it doesn't really help us to understand the book. Anyway, that that's that's you know, again my end pedantic literature teacher moment. Um, as if I ever end <laughs> pedantic literature teacher mode. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, okay. So Michael, anyway, I was coming back, Michael, to your to your good observations. Um, uh, It's uh, so. You're talking about um okay, sort of the rate of decline in those that in uh the barber doesn't doesn't wind down at all right it, it sort of ends on this high note and they lived happily ever after um, Morgansterns Stern's declines like falls off a cliff right it declines really fast, um not to destruction right we don't know exactly what happens at the end, but as you know it, it's a cliffhanger but it but it does you know it does drop i agree um and then we get a slower decline, right? Oh no, they don't fall off the cliff actually, right? It's a cliffhanger, they don't actually fall off the cliff. Um, the ship is there and they're happy and they—they—they they, they, everything's fine, but then you know, eventually everything kind of, you know, they each lose and and uh, all of them are, ne- none of them are really happy. So yes, slow decline, fast decline, no decline. That seems a fair uh, set of observations to make about them. Um. Yeah, Daniel Bear, hang on to your observation about cough drops. If I don't bring it up later, remind me to come back to it. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, good, good. Yeah, Thomas Johnson says I sound like Count Rugen, uh, being so intent on making observation, observations in his pain journal. I mean, yeah, the guy was a sadistic freak, but uh, uh, but he was a, he was a scrupulous collector of information and drawer of conclusions. I mean, his uh, his uh, his methods were were, were entirely admirable um <laughs> yeah uh cut cut um yeah, yeah, Brianna, of course is pointing out how buttercup's baby <laughs> ends with a literal- cliffhanger, uh yeah, 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 that's true, um mm. Kate says, this is part of the whole meaning, isn't it? That true love and stories about said true love are what the reader makes of it. Billy's father created a story for him, and that story was true for young Billy and his father, and this story is Billy's attempt to give us, the readers, a chance to take what we want from the story. I, I, sort of. I'll I'll, part of the way down that road with you, Kate. I do think that we get some sort of freedom to do that, but Well, adult Billy is pretty insistent on meaning, right? Now, Kate, I don't think that totally undermines your point. I think if we step back further and talk about sort of Goldman the the author or sort of the overall frame, the very outside frame of this story, we might still be left, right? Because in a sense, we have Billy the Kid's response, right, to the story, and then we have... um, uh, And then we have adult Goldman's response, very strong response to the story and we are, you know, you could say we're, we're sort of left to choose between them or to choose among them um, so I'm not saying that the fact that the Goldman narrator makes really uh, strong assertions totally undermines what you're saying, but I—but we, we have to go one step further out, I think uh, to get there um, Okay, uh, so but now, I keep going to Morgan Stern's ending. More observations here. Where does this leave us? What does this ending do? Where does, I mean, remember the questions we were asking at the very beginning, like, what, where is Morgan Stern? What is Morgan Stern doing in all this? Where do we hear Morgan Stern's voice um, pushing us? Um, what is Morgan Stern asking us to laugh at compared to what Goldman asks us to laugh at? The ending gives us a... Beautiful case study in that, right? If we want to be able to tease out the difference, right, of where Morgenstern is winking at us and where Goldman the narrator is winking at us, the endings present us remarkable material for that, right? Michael says, it seems unnecessary and pointless to have this bit added only to stop the narrative abruptly. Well, pointless if your point is a satisfying conclusion to the narrative, right? From which it seems like we should perhaps conclude that that's not his point, right? Um, uh, you could say one of the ways in which uh the barber's ending serves as a commentary on Morgan Stern's text. And this is one of the things that you could do, right? I, I mean, it would be interesting uh, if we were in a real class, this would be an interesting paper, wouldn't it? A paper that says, um, that makes an argument to say, um, this is Goldman's father's interpretation of the Princess Bride, right? What did that story mean to Goldman's father? Um, What is the essence of Goldman's, of the Barber's version of the story? Um, What, you know, uh, show us that, give us that. Um, I I think that would be be a really interesting paper. That would be a really interesting project. Um, But but here's one place where you can get some evidence for that paper, right? Um, Because the Barber's cutting it off before that last paragraph, or two paragraphs. Um, is telling, right, um, that th- he doesn't he doesn't want to go here. He gives it the the satisfying ending, right, um, the ending which focuses on true love, right. Not only by leaving us with the true love statements, empty headed though they kind of sound, and uh, but then he also you know tacks on that they live happily ever after. Um Lee Smith says the crescendo is the loudest part of the work, i.e., the pursuit is ever closing in and we'll be upon them. Um yeah, I agree. I mean it's not only it's it's an ominous you know. Well, I guess I mean all cliffhangers are ominous, right? I mean there's no time at which you're hanging off a cliff that is that isn't ominous. <laughs> but uh but Lee, I'm trying to You're right, the the final note here is negative. Where does he end? Um, uh, If the declarations of eternal love and eternal life somehow derived from that love, if that's where the Barber's story ends, where Morgenstern's story ends is with a crescendoing sound of pursuit, right? The rising uh, sound of the hunters bearing down upon them. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Brian uh, Yoder says it's almost as though we still haven't reached the final climax. Yes, again, from which we. So the the observation, then Brian, that we take from that to try to put towards our conclusion, if if we're trying to draw the conclusion about where Morgan Stern is bringing us at the end of the story. That would have to be. So why doesn't he bring us there? Right. Why doesn't he give it to us? Why. Why do we get no final climax? Why has Morganstern omitted? M- Morganstern has apparently chosen to omit his final climax, right? That's a fascinating choice, right? Um, Michael wants from that to draw the conclusion: Morganstern seems to focus more on the futility of such romantic quests. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, Michael, I'd almost be willing to uh, sort of take that, take this as another wink. In that sense, that is to say, if there is any question about how seriously we should take Wesley and Buttercup's declarations, right, if we promise that we will outlive each other, then we'll never die, right? Oh, my Wesley, so do I, right, promise that she will outlive him. It's not just us rolling our eyes at that moment, right? Um... Morganstern's last two paragraphs seem to suggest, yeah, does that seem likely to work out, right? That's not where the story ends, right? This story ends with us immediately being told, uh, no, in fact, you know, the horseman of your pursuers, and presumably death thereafter, uh, is hot on your heels. You're not going to escape death. You're not going to escape This is not going to end Happily, it's not going to end simply and happily anyway. Um, I think we it, one one way to read this is to take to see this as Morgan Stern kind of looking at looking at us over the head of the fairy story and saying, "Yeah, let me see how that pans out, right? This is not panning out." And and but yet Brian, as you pointed out, denying us the final um, the final climax, right? Telling us a story which comes to no resolution. Which is again, seems to me, another sort of piece of satire of the of the fairy tale ending, right? It's this ending is almost like the exact opposite, like the mirror opposite of they lived happily ever after, right? Which puts a neat bow on the story. It's a frame mechanism, right? Morgan's turn goes in the refuses that framing, refuses to put a bow on it, and refuses the happiness as well. Um, You know, and... uh, Yeah, Philip Lord points out that Humperdinck is making good on his promise to Wesley, which sounded really improbable at the time, right? I wasn't being a coward, I was totally just just surrendering because I wanted to hunt you down later. Well, he is doing it, right? Um... Yeah, yeah. Goldman's ending. What do we do with this? Where does this leave us? Um, Who was it? Philip? Brian? Who was it who was making the point about the cough drops? Daniel. Daniel, yeah, thank you, Daniel. Daniel just said cough drops. Excellent, yeah, yeah. Um, Daniel asked the question before, does the reference to cough drops at the end there Undermine the love. Thing, right? you know, I really do think that love is the best thing in the world, except for cough drops. That doesn't necessarily have to undermine the thing about love, but it, it does invite us to laugh, right? Uh, I mean, I don't think we need to see that as like a solemn rejection of love, right? That would be an exaggeration, but we are invited to laugh at the idea that love is the best thing in the world, right? um i don't think this is an earnest endorsement of cough drops at the expense of love um but uh um yeah arthur says for goldman love is love is trivial um it does, of course, return to Miracle Max as the sort of moral compass of the book, right? That's again totally willing to buy that. I am so happy to concede that Valerie, and Miracle Max, about whom we've not talked at all, are, are really the centerpieces of the book. I, again, I, I think I can get behind that argument. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now Thomas points out that, of course, the love and cough drops line comes from comes from uh, from, from from Max. Who is actually in a substantive loving relationship, yeah, and relatively long-standing. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I, I get, you know, So, the fact that we're nodding back to that, Thomas, I am willing to accept that as reason to think he's not undermining love here. He's contextualizing his comment about love. In fact, okay, Thomas, we can from that build um, we, we can from that build a counter-argument, a, a significant counter-argument, right? By quoting Miracle Max. In the last paragraph, and you know, saying I do think love is the best thing in the world, Um, and then he quotes Miracle Max, and in quoting Miracle Max, he's not undermining the statement that love is the best thing in the world, but contextualizing it, right? Um, Because Miracle Max is the one who is. If you're going to go to anybody in this book for romantic advice, it's got to be Miracle Max and Valerie, right? I mean, there's there's no question that the two of them have like by far the best, really, you know, the most. uh, 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 the, the 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 highest quality relationship in the book. If you're going to get, you're going to get marital advice from anybody, it's going to be them, right? So, I, I, I mean, although the actual letter of what he says there, except for cough drops, does kind of undermine and invite us to laugh at love, the fact that we're laughing along with Max and Valerie, you know, maybe this is a kind of a witty endorsement of love. Um, I'm open. I'm open to that to that uh, to that argument. Um, uh, what about, uh, more, more. What about the rest of it? Um, What about his additions? Where does he take us here? The eventual decline of everybody? Thomas Johnson is also pointing out that the conceit that the story is historical is being dropped here. Um, You know, if it were, all that narrator Goldman could do is just recap the historical record, right? He wouldn't have to guess about whether or not they had a happy ending. He could just say, well, of course, uh, we know what really happened, right? What really happened was this. Um, He does seem to have completely dropped that conceit in this moment. Yes, Daniel Bear points out that he has committed uh what and this is not Daniel's word but mine has committed the uh the, the sort of sacrilegious uh uh, uh you know uh, 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 act of uh, giving even Fezzik and Inigo uh an unhappy ending, which Morgan obviously wouldn't have done. Um Sarah Powell says, "This is Billy grown up, right? Still trying to maintain that Morgan Stern is an amazing writer of the best story ever, while keeping his father's sense of an, of an appropriate fairy tale ending with a balance of short-term success and long-term troubles." Right? You're right, Sarah. I mean, one—I'm what, what, drawing your 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 comment kind of is really interesting. It says a whole bunch of different things. One thing I draw from it: he is going back and. Um, Basically, notice he's he's kind of correcting Morgenstern back to uh, back to his dad's version, not fully right. He qualifies his dad's version, but there is a bit of a reversion here to the previous version. Right? Let me let me come in again. Um, the father said, Morgenstern, your ending sucks. I'm not going to end with the with the with the with the crescendoing pursuit." <clears throat> we're gonna end it they lived happily ever after. Goldman, adult Goldman, also rejects Morgan Stern's ending. The father and son agree on that, right? Now he doesn't just return to his father's reading. He doesn't say, and they lived happily ever after. Um he says, I do think they got away. I don't think that the ending is the, the is, you know, I he 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 he's, he roundly rejects the indeterminate and unhappy ending um sort of implicitly unhappy ending uh to the story to this you know uh to this sequel he 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 he, re- he rejects the 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 bad climax that seems to be coming with the crescendo in pursuit but he resists the happy happily ever after right so you could say it's actually the bit that his father added that he rejects right um, he rejects the end they lived happily ever after and insists that, no, that's not how things really work. Um, happily ever after doesn't really happen because eventually Buttercup's going to lose her looks, which also makes me not quite as uncomfortable as the girls contemplating suicide line, but that also makes me a little uncomfortable. Um, Fezzik losing a fight, you know, Inigo getting whipped, and Wesley never being able to sleep again. None of them end happily. Um, merely slapping and they lived happily ever after doesn't do it. Um, but yes, Neil, not happily ever after, but happy for quite a while. Yeah. Um, and then he comes back to, his, the real message is that life isn't fair, it's just fairer than death, that's all. More. And yes, several of you are recalling of course the uh, uh, the Relationship with his wife, right, and the, the 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 relevance of that for the frame, and his question about love and his depiction of relationships. Um, yes, yes, um, yeah. Brian Yoder says this makes me think that Goldman's insistence that Morgan Stern was a master of narrative, while also talking about how terrible some parts were, was really Goldman misidentifying his father's mastery at making the story more bearable and interesting. Um, yes, yes. While simultaneously resisting his father's abridgment, right, his father was the one who abridged it um, narrative Goldman's comment this is Thomas Johnson again uh narrative Goldman's comment that Buttercup will lose her looks seems to indicate that he recognizes that Wesley and Buttercup's relationship is based on transient physical attraction, and that once that is gone, they'll be unhappy um yeah, always potentially uh, again, that's where we're left with Buttercup right. Um, she seems to have been really just a, just a pretty face. Um, yeah, yeah, um... Good, Kate Neville reminds us that of course the relationship between Billy and his wife and his son are also fictional. Uh, So the reality that the narrator is inserting is also a fictional construct. Yes, yes, exactly. let's go back trying to contextualize this more, especially that last bit. I'm not even going to really make a gesture at um, it's just fairer than death, that's all, without going back and looking at the previous uh, insistences. But first, before we do that, one contribution I wanted to add, and this is from an email that I got uh, from Kelly Arazi, one of our uh, Mythgard MA students, um, who was sort of posing some questions about the narrator, and I should say, in fairness, she did this after class number two, um so uh... this was this was this was much earlier on without the benefit of our last two discussions I dislike the introduction, and the interruption so much the first time I read the novel a couple years ago, but rereading the book for this class, I suddenly like the frame narration, because I think it all works as a commentary on storytelling, and reading books as a kid versus reading them as an adult. As annoying as Goldman narrator is in the introduction, I find it quite beautiful how we're given this very modern scene of Goldman in L.A., an unsatisfied and confused adult, stuck in a world where his favorite novel as a kid has not only left him, but has pretty much dropped out of existence but here's the thing, the book keeps coming back to him. Those scenes of the modern L.A. world are so beautifully juxtaposed with short bursts of memories of a father struggling to read his child. Goldman can't shake it off. Reading The Princess Bride is a bit like that, only the opposite. The story isn't infiltrating our modern world. Instead, the real world keeps interrupting our story. It's almost like those interruptions pull us right out of that experience, reminding us that we're reading a story or book so that we can appreciate being able to read the book all the more. Whenever we get to Goldman's annotations, we become a bit like Prince Humperdinck at his wedding. Wesley is right there on the other side of the door, can't we just skip to the end? Or, yes, get on with it, is usually how I feel reading the annotations. We can't shake off the real world, or can we? Isn't that what we do as we read this fairy tale? The frame narrative keeps reminding us that we have the luxury to escape in a story that makes us anticipate the story, almost even more because we just want to return to it. But do you think this is wishful thinking on my part, or could this be Goldman's intention? Um, one of the, you know, one, Kelly. One of the things I would say to you is that's to me exactly the issue. This is why I've been harping from the beginning on the question of how are we getting the fairy tale version here? Um, in this story, um, does the story that we're getting allow us to lose ourselves in that story? Um, is in fact what is happening? that we are getting a beautiful fairy tale story and the modern world keeps interrupting. In one sense, that's happening, but the way in which the fairy tale story is itself, in my view, undermined um, not quite all the way through. Again, I don't want to lose completely what we had, what we found in book two. I don't take those observations back in retrospect. Um, I, I, I still think that those were valid, but, um, uh, um but I certainly don't see it all the way through, and as I have argued today, um, any any amount of investment that I had really um, peters out towards the end, and, until at the end. In fact, even in the very last moments, even in the Barber's own end version, like I said, the very last moment of the book is, um, of the Barber's version of the book, is to me, you know, one of sort of the least, um, the least satisfying. Um, uh, but, um, But Kelly, that's not to say that I think that 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 this stuff is irrelevant either. There is a romance to um, there is a romance to the father's version of the story, and in particular to the version. And this comes back to what we were talking about way back in the first class. <laughs> way back, it was only four weeks ago. Seems like a long time ago, though. Um, uh, back in the first class about. And and, you know, and and Kelly is talking about this too, about the adult Goldman's memories of his childhood experience of reading the book. Right? The impression that he came away with, how he, he clearly was invested in it. How he did lose himself in the story. Uh, and, uh, and then was shocked to find that the story was only not one that you would lose yourself in as an adult, but in fact um, pretty bad until it was abridged, right? Um, but that seems to me where the, and again, I, yeah, I, I keep going back to Indigo and Fezzik, and in my mind it's kind of interesting that ultimately um, it's the male-male relationships that are the most important ones here. Um, the romantic relationship, you know, Buttercup and and, and, and and Wesley, again, that doesn't, in my mind, really end up well. The two most important relationships, I think, in this story are Inigo and Phezik and the father and the son. And I kind of suspect that the Inigo and Phezik ones are so important because they are connected to the father-son relationship. Of course, Inigo's story being explicitly a father-son relationship. Um, but we you know, we talked about even the sort of father-son dynamics in the Inigo and Phezik relationship. Um, um, but I mean, even, and, and even, you know, so you've got the father-son thing and the, the, the sort of the masculine camaraderie thing. And in my mind, there's no question that the most genuinely moving, touching, and um, uh, uh, sort of enduring stories that I really lose myself in are those two, Inigo and Fezzik and the uh, you know uh, the the barber and and Billy. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. Sarah Lagarde suggests that The Revenge of the Swordmaker's Son may not be quite so suitable a book title as The Princess Bride. Um, Well, no, not quite as catchy. A little more intimidating, you know, a little more off-putting, but more accurate, more accurate. Um, uh, Yeah. Uh, Kate says that, that she'll agree with me that the father-son is the key. Um, Maybe I'd have liked Buttercup more if she'd had a real relationship with one of her parents. Maybe I'd have liked Buttercup more if it was Goldman's mom reading to him. That is to say, it's hard for me to emerge from this book not All right, let me just say what I'm going to say, and then I'll qualify it, rather than trying to qualify it in advance. Um, It's hard for me not to read this book and feel like it's broadly anti-woman. This book feels misogynistic to me. I'll just say that. Now, here are the qualifications. I am not necessarily saying that this proves that William Goldman himself is personally a misogynist. Um, That's the leap that people tend to make. And I, uh, you know... people tend immediately to make, and which I would kind of resist, or at least, I mean, I, 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 I'm not ready to convict Goldman on the evidence of this book alone, personally convict Goldman of misogyny. Um, but women are not treated well in this story. Um, part of me wants to say, that's unfortunate, given the, But given the fact that, as I say, the primary interest of this story does seem to be all about the male relationships, especially the father son relationship um, i'm uh, you know I mean it's not like for the same thing that I've said time and again for why it doesn't bother me that there are no female characters in the Hobbit um, I, I don't acknowledge that as a blemish in the Hobbit. Um, i think that the you know the sort of the modern uh the modern view of like that you know there has to be proper representation and uh um uh and that you know all stories must treat like you know a, 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 an appropriate palette of like gender and you know racial diversity and it has to treat them all in a in a in a particular way i don't i don't i don't buy that um uh, that I think is is a very narrow way to look at literature, to look at art, and I don't I don't I don't myself subscribe to that. But this this book to me goes a little bit a little bit past that, um, and uh, um, so okay to. Thomas Johnson has another suggestion here. Perhaps Goldman is trying to show how fairy tales, which usually feature women who suffer a lot, and whose virtue mostly derives from their beauty, are misogynistic. We often overlook this in traditional fairy tales, but Goldman makes it impossible to ignore. Thomas, has an excellent example of why I'm not willing to convict Goldman himself and say this just proves that Goldman, the author, uh, is a is, is misogynist, that he's, that he's anti-woman. Uh, um, Kate says uh, she doesn't think necessarily misogynistic, perhaps more uh, a real admission that the author really doesn't understand the women in his life. Um, uh, interesting. Uh, Kate makes an interesting biographical point uh, that uh, in real life, William Goldman has does not have any sons, but has two daughters. And within the fictional frame, he has substituted the two real daughters for one fictional son. Um, that is an interesting point, isn't it, Kate? Um Anyway, um, I uh, I don't um, yeah yeah um, uh, right. No, I, I I think I, Kate, I think that that's a, that's an interesting way to think about it. And one of the reasons why, you know, Kate, I almost go in the same in a similar direction there with Tolkien in The Hobbit. Um, it's he's writing about an all male world. Well, I mean, dang it, Tolkien lived in an all male world a lot of the time. I mean, not at home, right? He had a wife and he had a daughter, um, but uh, uh, and he was raised by his. But but again, it's not that he didn't know any women. Um, but uh, but like, you know, in a early half of the twentieth century world of all male boarding schools uh, and and colleges, it's you know. Telling a story that happens within an all male world—that was a world they lived in, you know. That, uh, and anyway, so I, I um, so again, Kate coming back to this idea of, uh, of, you know, sort of the story not going there. Um, I agree. He claims that uh, uh, Goldman claims that he seems almost to himself openly to protest that he doesn't really understand women. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, good. And Kate, of course, points out that Tolkien's daughter was his youngest born, um, and not really in the picture when we're talking about the Hobbit. Um, and we get more women in the Lord of the Rings. Agreed. Um, anyway, um, good, Sarah King. You have another. You make another point with which I agree strongly, and it's one of the reasons why I get really frustrated with people who want... You know, who have this this kind of affirmative action attitude uh, to 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 literary representation, you know, within stories. Um, Sarah says, "I don't need a character to match my gender before I can enter the story or sympathize with a character." Agreed. I mean, I I uh, um, I I don't know. When 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 I hear people saying like, "Oh, I could I, you know, I could get into Tolkien better if it had more female characters," I always feel like, "What's wrong with you?" Like that. You know, I, I I don't have any problem getting into Jane Austen. I, I like Jane Austen. You know, I love Jane Austen's novels. Um and it's not because like I really sympathize with the males that, that I like Jane Austen. I mean anyway. Um yeah, Sarah King, I I, I do I do agree with you there. Anyway. Um the uh, uh, Brianna uh, has a response to uh, Thomas's uh, uh, fairy tale argument. Uh, she says it could be argued that there are better ways to point out sexism in traditional fairy tales than just making a joke out of it and, ha- and, and, and having it uh, in heavy-handed doses. Uh, it would have been nice to see Goldman did this, but then had Buttercup escape it. But alas, yeah, um, I agree. It's a little. I mean, you could say it's a satire of the, of, of, of you know the misogyny in traditional fairy tales. Um, but I agree with you, Brianna. It doesn't seem to offer an alternative, right? Um, it's uh, think about that moment in the very first slide from tonight when I was suggesting that, um, uh, that when when I was suggesting that Humperdinck and the audience are kind of that. That you know, I felt like I was exchanging a wink with Humperdinck, right? You know, like he and I understood what was really going on. We're both together, agreeing to laugh at Buttercup, right? Um, there's no moment like that, it doesn't seem to me, in the story where we're being asked to sort of connect and look down at the misogyny, right, where we're being invited to say, you know, as the story does seem to me at several points to invite us to say, these true love stories, you and I understand about these true love stories, right, isn't this a little bit silly, right, I don't ever see the story looking at me and saying, this misogyny, it's a little bit of poem, isn't it, right, I see a, a a story which contains misogyny, which I do personally find uh, appalling, but i don't I don't necessarily see that. Um, i i don't I don't feel that happening all right let me um, um yeah, and of course Alyssa points out the uh, the treatment of the women uh, at the pool and the uh, modern adult Goldman half. Um, the possible misogyny is, is not limited to the Morgan Stern part. Yes, agreed, agreed. Um, all right, here's what I'm going to do. We're out of time. I'm not going to keep you that long, but I don't want to take. I, want to, I don't want to steal too much of our movie time either. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look ahead at the passages that I want to talk about. We won't talk about, but I, I want I want to throw them out there. Do some thinking. We'll come back and do some conclusions about these at the beginning of class, and then we'll move on to the movie. That's what we're going to do. Okay, um, a few things. First, this is a minor passage, but I thought it was interesting. Um, so we start off with Morgan Stern, and then it, then we get the, inter- the we get the interruption. Besides, and here Inigo felt deep pain. Uh, 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 he wasn't that great a fencer, not anymore. He couldn't be. Hadn't he just been beaten once? True, he had been a titan, but now, now. What happens here that you aren't going to read is the six-page soliloquy from Inigo in which Morgenstern, through Inigo, reflects on the anguish of fleeting glory. The reason for the soliloquy here is that Morgenstern's previous book had gotten bombed by the critics and also hadn't sold beans. Aside, did you know that Robert Browning's first book of poems didn't sell one copy? True, even his mother didn't buy it at her local bookstore. Have you ever heard of anything more humiliating? Of course, as you remember, probably, he goes on and talks about the Browning aside from the aside uh, uh, more often um, so this is one passage that I thought was an interesting one to consider um, uh, that we get um, uh, we get um, Goldman indulging in this piece of crit fic about Morgenstern right? Morganstern only said this because the critics had bombed his previous book and it hadn't sold beans Now, the uh, three biggest, most important passages, I think. I spent that whole night thinking Buttercup married Humperdinck. It just rocked me. How can I explain it? But the world didn't work that way. Good got attracted to good. Evil, you just fl- you flushed down the john, and that was that. But their marriage, I couldn't make it jive. God, did I work at it. First, I thought that probably Buttercup had this fantastic effect on Humperdinck and turned him into a kind of Wesley. Or maybe Wesley and Humperdinck turned out to be long-lost brothers, and Humperdinck was so happy to get his brother back, he said, look, Wesley, I didn't realize who you were when I married her, so what I'll do is I'll divorce her, and you marry her and that way, we'll all be happy. So to this day, I don't think I was ever more creative. But it didn't take. Something was wrong, and I couldn't lose it. Some, suddenly there was this discontent gnawing away until it had a place big enough to settle in, and then it curled up and stayed there, and it's still inside me, lurking as I write this now. The next night, when my father went back to reading and the marriage turned out to have been Buttercup's dream, I screamed, I knew it! All along I knew it! And my father said, so you're happy now? It's all right now? We can please continue? And I said, go. And he did. But I wasn't happy. Oh, my ears were happy, I guess. My story sense was happy. My heart, too. But in my, I suppose you have to call it soul, there was that damn discontent shaking its dark head. I think this must be, that must be, I think there must have been a typo there. No, 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 it's not, sorry, it's not his father we're talking about, it's his neighbor, the writer, okay. Uh, uh, And that's when she put her book down and looked at me and said, life isn't fair, Bill. We tell our children that it is, but it's a terrible thing to do. It's not only a lie, it's a cruel lie. Life is not fair, and it never has been, and it's never going to be. Would you believe that for me right then, it was like one of those comic books where the light bulb goes on over Mandrake the Magician's head? It isn't, I said, so loud I really startled her. You're right! It's not fair! I was so happy, if I'd known how to dance, I'd have started dancing. Isn't that great? Isn't it just terrific? I think along about here, Edith must have thought I was well on my way toward being bonkers. But it meant so much to me to have it said and out and free and flying, That was the discontent I endured the night my father stopped reading, I realized right then. That was the reconciliation I was trying to make and couldn't. And that's what I think this book's about. All those Columbia experts can spiel all they want about the delicious satire. They're crazy. This book says, life isn't fair. And I'm telling you, one and all, you better believe it. That's what this book says, right? This book says, life isn't fair. You mean he wins, Daddy? What did you read me this thing for? And I buried my head in my pillow, and I never cried like that again, not once to this day. I could feel almost my heart emptying into my pillow. I guess the most amazing thing about crying, though, is that when you're in it, you'll think it'll go on forever, but it never really lasts half of what you think, not in terms of real time. In terms of real emotions, it's worse than you think, but not by the clock. When my father came back, it couldn't have been even even an hour later. So, he said. Shall we go on tonight or not? Shoot, I told him. Eyes dry, no catch in throat, nothing. Fire when ready. Within a go? Let's hear the murder, I said. I knew I wasn't about to bawl again. Like buttercups, my heart was now a secret garden, and the walls were very high. Okay. What do we think about this? If you want to uh, come to your own conclusions here, where, uh, how do we fit this in? think about his ending, where do we get, what is what is Goldman the narrator saying about this book, Where does and where where do we situate ourselves here? Do we buy what the narrator says? Are we supposed to be resistant to what the narrator is saying? We've been suggesting from the beginning that we're not accepting the narrator's voice as authoritative, right? It's a fiction. Um, you know, this is not biography he's telling, he's not being genuine with us here. Um, What conclusions do we draw? Where does this push us? Where does this leave us? Um, What are we... What do we take from this book? What what does the book say to us, and how does this stuff... Um, This is, in my mind, one of the most interesting things that the frame does, right? He insists within the frame of this book, here's what the real story of the book is. Is that so? Um, Where do we end up? So, okay. Um, I... uh, um, We'll come back and do this next time. I tell you, we're going to be so efficient covering this at the beginning of class next time. You're all going to be amazed, and then we're going to go right to the movie. Um, so make sure you do watch the movie again if you haven't seen it in years. Definitely watch it again. Um, you know, after our uh, because I, because I want you to be able to do specific observations uh, and, and particular points of comparison. Um, uh, the uh, comparison between the book and the film are, are what I'm going to really want to do. Think about the Indigo and Fezziwig story. Think about the Buttercup and Wesley story. Think about the ending. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to hear your observations. So, um, those things next time. Thanks for joining me, everybody. Uh, I uh, I appreciate your uh, your indulgence of me. Uh, and we'll see. Yeah, Brian, Rode, Brian Yoder is daring me uh, to be efficient. We'll see, man. Here I, I, okay, I can promise you'll be surprised. I hope you'll be surprised. I'll do my best. Uh, anyway, thanks, everybody. Good night. I'll see you guys next. we will be back home next week, so uh, hopefully it'll be a little a bit easier. Uh, thanks very much. Bye now.